I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're going to finish this chapter today as we look at the idea of grace-fueled forgiveness. Grace-fueled forgiveness. In other words, God's grace toward us is the fuel that God gives us to enable us to forgive others. When we understand what God has forgiven us in Christ, how God's grace has been extended to us through his son, Jesus Christ, we can learn to forgive others. And so we're going to see this central idea this morning that a heart forgiven by grace forgives others by grace. When we understand how God has forgiven us, God helps us forgive other people. So Matthew chapter 18, I'll begin reading in verse 21. We'll read the rest of the chapter. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant, that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, Peter's the guy that's good to have at an awkward party. If there's a room full of people and, you know, no one knows quite what to say, Peter will pipe up. Now, he's not the guy you want to tell your deepest, darkest secret and hope that he'll keep it. But he is a guy that knows the icebreaker and kind of get things rolling. And Jesus has just got done, gotten done addressing a rather difficult subject, the idea of how you resolve sin and conflict in the church. And Peter has a follow-up question. Well, Jesus, how many times do we have to go through this process with this theoretical person? And in doing so, he introduces a, an ethical question. In other words, let's say you have the same person, the same troublemaker, doing the same thing, theoretically, over and over and over again. This person has a hard time licking this particular sin. How many times, how obligated are we to continue putting up with that? Well, before we go any further, let's, let's note that, that we're talking about sin in a context where a person is, is genuinely repenting of their sin. In other words, Jesus has already taught a number of times about how important, important it is that our words and our lives match. So in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus taught that we know one another by the fruit of our lives. 
So by our fruit, we can be known. And in Matthew 18, he says there's this process you go through with repenting people. But, but let's just say for the sake of argument that, that this person shows fruits of genuine repentance. He's not merely saying, I'm sorry, and kind of going back to the same thing. He, he's genuinely turning to the Lord in his sin. How many times do we have to forgive that person? Well, the rabbis had a theory about this, and they taught that, that three was the magic number. In other words, the third time's the charm. In fact, quote, they say, if, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. I mean, it makes sense, right? At some point, someone has to learn their lesson. So Peter goes way out on a limb, and he probably thinks he's being rather extreme here. And he says, okay, the, the, the rabbis teach three times I'm going to double that and not even add one at the end. And he says seven times. You may expect a, a pat on the back at the end of this. Like Jesus like, oh man, Peter, you know, you are the gracious of, the most gracious of gracious people ever. So no doubt he's surprised when in verse 22, Jesus responds and says, not seven times, but rather 77 times. In Genesis chapter 4, first two brothers are born, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, like a lot of siblings, have sibling conflict. Their conflict centers around the idea that God accepts Abel's offering and does not accept Cain's offering. And so Cain kills his brother. Cain is an evil guy. If you pass six generations down, Cain's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, you come to a man named Lamech. Now, if Cain is a bad man, Lamech is a bad man. In fact, Lamech is an abusive, evil, murdering guy himself, and he sings a song. And he sings a song to his wives, and he brags about how abusive and evil he is, and he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, Lamech is, is a picture of the most abusive, most vindictive, most evil person. And what Jesus teaches here is, that one on the evil side is characteristic of the worst person. On the flip side, that kind of generous, most forgiving, most gracious spirit should be characteristic of any child of God. So what was once characteristic of the worst person must, through Christ, be characteristic of all God's people in a positive sense. Lamech was concerned with 77 times revenge, and we ought to be concerned with infinite forgiveness through Christ. And as Jesus often does, he tells us a story to help us understand. He gives us a picture of the king's mercy in verses 23 through 27. The ancient temple in Jerusalem was the greatest building project in ancient Israel. Its magnificence, its wealth, its opulence were famed throughout that part of the world. Well, when David the king is preparing for his son Solomon to build the temple, in 1 Chronicles 29, he's collecting uh, money, taxes, offerings to be used in the building of the temple. And in that chapter, we have David's contribution to the temple. 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver for a total offering of, if you're good at math, 10,000 talents. In other words, 10,000 talents is a king's ransom. It's a king's offering. It's something that only a king can afford to pay. So a servant who owes 10,000 talents owes an unimaginable, impossible-to-pay debt. 
we think of money in terms of decimal places and zeros today. So if you want to add money, you, you add a zero to it. But in this case, a talent is an amount of zeros. It's, it's an amount of weight. It's, it's, a, it's a value weighed. And a talent is the greatest weight, the greatest measure in Jewish currency. This is a vast sum of money that this, that this servant owes this king, a sum of 10,000 talents. This means that this servant is probably someone fairly important, perhaps a high-ranking official, maybe a tax collector who has failed to pay the, the taxes back to the king. He's collected them and he's kept them for himself. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided amongst his sons into tetrarchs. Well, into tetrarchies, well, his, his sons, the, the, the total amount of tax collected from all of his regions was 900 talents per year. So in other words, what you're looking at is, is something in the, in the neighborhood of 10 years worth of tax collection from the entire kingdom that this man owes. To translate in this into today's money on the conservative side, this is in the tens of millions of dollars. Probably more likely, this is somewhere north of a billion dollar debt that this guy owes. It's 200,000 man years in labor. In other words, you would have to work for 200,000 years to pay off this debt. Well, the most valuable first century slave is worth one talent, but that's the top of the food chain, the best, most important servant. So if the king responds to this debt, as he has a right to, by selling this man and his family into slavery, there's no way that they can, that they can pay off this debt. This man, his wife, his kids, it's, it's not a way to repay the debt. It's a choke, token gesture to, to the king, just to kind of, I don't know, satisfy him at some level. So this servant literally has no hope. The debt is too big to pay, and there's no doubt that he's guilty of running up this debt. So in verse 26, he is desperate to be rescued. And he comes to the king, falls on his knees, and begs for mercy. He literally asks, be patient, and I'll repay everything. Note the wording here, be patient. It's a plea for patience, because that's significant later. And also notice that this is an unjust request that he's making. He says, be patient with me, and I'll do what? I'll repay you. But it's impossible that he can repay this debt. It's an impossible debt to pay. No matter how patient the king is with him, he can't pay this money back. So rather than being patient, the king opts for mercy and chooses instead to forgive the debt. I mean, maybe he's just a practical guy and he realizes he's not going to see the money either way. It doesn't do him any good to sell this guy and his family. I mean, this is an unbelievably generous decision. This servant has run up an impossible debt. The king has the power to snap his fingers and just make it go away, and he, he does so. I mean, think what this means. It's, it's not just the forgiving of a debt. It means this man, his wife, his children are free. I mean, no doubt in this moment, this is an unbelievably emotional moment for this man. He's guilty of this debt, but he goes free. It's hard to imagine what he feels. Joy, hope, a sense of being delivered, maybe even gratitude. But I don't think actually gratitude because of what happens next. Let's see what this big, important, forgiven servant does next. The king is merciful, gracious. The servant, on the other hand, is greedy. 
he's a fairly important person to run up this kind of debt, and so he has servants or people working for him as well. One of his servants owes him some money, 100 denarii. One denarii is one day's wage, so if you're good at math, 100 denarii is 100 days wages. So it's a not insignificant debt, but it's not like his debt. So visualize with me for a moment. Let's say um, instead of a day, let's say we're talking miles, so 100 miles of debt. So what's 100 miles from here? I mean, Myrtle Beach, Columbia, Statesboro, something like that. So if you had to walk there, that's a long walk. I mean, it takes some time to, 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 to walk that out, to pay that debt back. But the big servant, you know, the, the big dude owes, owes a 73 million mile walk. In other words, if he were to walk around the earth, he'd have to take a trip around the earth some 2,931 times to walk off his debt. 24,900 miles around the earth, walk that about 2,900 times, and he could pay off his debt. One debt is reasonable here to Columbia. The other debt is not. It's, it's not possible to pay that debt. So the servant who's just had an infinite debt forgiven, no doubts, turns around and is reasonable, Right? Not really. Look at the attitude of this big, bad servant, verse 28. Seizing him, this other servant, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, we don't know all of the reasons for this guy's situation, but it's easy to create a little backstory here, isn't it? To imagine that the debt to the king isn't the only debt that he owes. Maybe he owes something to a bank or a money lender and Someone with trouble like this has trouble perhaps on a number of financial fronts. He's probably living in a, in a bigger house than he can afford, driving more chariot than he can afford, buying nicer togas than he can afford. I mean, he's probably living a lifestyle that, that he shouldn't be living. And when you run up a tab on life, life always comes calling. And life comes calling for him. So his greed makes him desperate. His desperation makes him cruel. So in verse 29, we hear some words for the second time. He says, be patient, and I will repay everything. Does that sound familiar? It's his words coming back at him, verse 26. So there's a part of me that, that hopes this man stops, catches himself. Hears his own words coming back at him and says, what am I doing? But he doesn't. He just plunges ahead, verse 30. He refused went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, it doesn't immediately jump out at us because we're not familiar necessarily with first century Jewish law, but here we get more of a picture about how bad this dude is. You see, it's illegal to sell a person into slavery for more than their debt is worth. And even the, the worst slave, the cheapest, most unable slave, is worth 500 denarii. What's this guy's debt? A hundred denarii. So he can't sell the servant, so he just throws him in prison. He's going to get his pound of flesh no matter what. But what then is the root of the big servant's sin? Well, we see his cruelty. But it seems to me that what's going on in his heart, something that leads him to this cruelty, is, is more like selfishness or, or greed. I mean, maybe he wants a nice life or a nice life for his wife and kids. But his greed has led him to live beyond his means. He's run up this big debt. And now he's taking advantage of others. And these two things are connected. 
One is an ugly kind of external form of greed. In other words, pay me what you owe. We can, we can all see that. That's cruel greed. But the other is more passive. He's, he's lived in a way that's, that's led him into this situation. It's harder to see. But both of these are from what Paul addresses in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. You see, greed and selfishness manifest themselves in different ways, but it leads to all sorts of trouble. Paul goes on to describe the love of money as a craving. Do you know what that is, a craving? I mean, now some of y'all ladies can remember seasons of life where you've had this. A craving for something that you've never, ever had in your life. And, and you go through a nine-month period and suddenly you crave ketchup on pickles or something weird. But, but beyond that, we, we go through life and, and we have cravings. So we're leading up to Thanksgiving. And the most important meal, the most important part of the meal at Thanksgiving isn't turkey or dressing. It's not cranberry sauce. It's not mac and cheese. It's not, it's not ham. It's vanilla cream pie. And so we're heading up for, we're driving up to Greenville for Thanksgiving, and there's this list of food going around among, you get this family text, and I'm realizing I haven't heard anyone mention vanilla cream pie, and and it's not Thanksgiving if we don't have it, we have it once a year, and I'm really looking forward to this. And so suddenly, you know, I haven't been craving vanilla cream pie, but suddenly I'm craving vanilla cream pie, and realizing Thanksgiving isn't passing, if, if it hasn't passed, if we haven't had vanilla cream pie. Thankfully, my sister-in-law came through for us. We had plenty of vanilla cream pie. But a craving is, 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 is this desire that kind of rises up in you, and you begin thinking about it. You begin fixating on it, and it's like, man, I, I want that thing. Maybe your mouth starts to water if it's food, or maybe you get started excited. You, you know, I don't know, you used to look at magazines, you flip through Amazon, you, just, you, you scroll through it to, to look, just to imagine the thing. You begin to crave it. You begin to think about it. Our desire to satisfy our cravings and passions may not be wrong, but it can lead us to take advantage of others. And that's what happens here. Either actively by taking something from someone or passively by failing through to follow, on our, to follow through on our responsibilities. This servant does both. He doesn't follow through on his responsibilities and he demands of others in a way that he's, by, you know, in a way that he's not willing to follow through himself. You see, you can't outgive God but you can outlive your means. And that's what this servant has done. What's the upshot of this? Paul says it's through this craving, through this desire, that some have wandered away from the faith. People chase the American dream. A bigger house, a nicer chariot to drive, better clothes, better schools. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. The Bible speaks of money, of riches, as a blessing from God. But God doesn't promise to make all of us healthy, happy, and wealthy in this world. We live in a fallen, broken world. And so what happens with our sinful hearts is God gives us good gifts, and we begin to value those gifts more than the giver. We begin to value the created things more than the creator. And we make our comfort, our standard of living, our lifestyle, rather than the glory of God, the chief end of man. So we exist for our comfort, our advancement, our glory, rather than the glory of God alone. 
So how do you know if you've fallen prey to the sin of the greedy servant? How do you know if you're loving stuff too much? It might be uncontrollable spending habits. It might be debt out of control. It may be taking advantage of others, fudging a little when you can to get ahead. It may look like not giving generously, sacrificially to a local church because you're consuming everything with your cravings. So what do you do when you find yourself in this position? Because the truth is, we all find ourselves at some level wishing we had more than we do. There's always more opportunity, always more need. How do we handle that? Well, we might need to be honest with ourselves and the Lord first. Sometimes it's hard to admit we got a problem. We've got to step back and admit that we have the problem. Secondly, if we recognize this, we have to repent of the habit as sin. The Bible's clear about the love of money. We, we have kind of band-aids or euphemisms, you know, I'll take care of this after Christmas, but just repent and take care of the sin as sin. Thirdly, reach out for help if you need it. We all need help sometimes. We all come broken, needy, empty. And growing in Christ is a community project. So find a friend or find a counselor who can help you. And fourthly, remember the grace of the gospel. We're going to end here in a minute, but, but, but don't forget it now. The God we serve isn't the unforgiving servant. He's the forgiving God. He's the forgiving king. And so if you find yourself in need of help, there's no shame in that. We're, we're in, a, a, in, in a community of people who are needy, a community of broken, empty people. Now, we know that servant two is a nicer guy than servant one. Because servant two actually has some friends. And in verse 31, they reach out to the king, their master, and tell him what's going on. And this brings us to the king's justice. What is it that brings forth the full force of the king's justice in the life of his servant? It's not the servant's debt. That's the big old problem staring us in the face. He forgave the debt. Rather, it's an unwillingness to forgive his fellow servant. Listen to the words describing the servant's lack of forgiveness. He seizes him, chokes him, refuses to forgive him, puts him in prison. So how does the king respond? Verse 32, you wicked servant. Verse 34, in anger his master delivers him to the jailer. Now this isn't debtor's prison. So the, the little servant goes to debtor's prison. That's where he's getting put. This guy doesn't go to that prison. He goes to the big, big, bad, bad prison. This jailer, it, it's a torturer. It's, it's a merciless person. It's someone designed to make you wish you had never done what you've done. Since this guy can't pay the debt, it's now going to be tortured out of him. He's going to pay it in pain. Well, what's the big deal? Why does the king respond this way? Because the servant's lack of mercy to his fellow servant reveals his lack of gratitude, his lack of repentance, his lack of understanding for what the king has done for him. So now he is going to be punished to the full extent of the law. It's striking that a passage about forgiveness ends with a sobering warning, a promise of judgment. Verse 35, if you do not forgive your brother, my heavenly Father will punish you to the full extent of his justice. You see, forgiven people forgive others. It doesn't remove consequences 
doesn't remove natural outcomes, but those who, for, who won't forgive demonstrate that they don't themselves understand God's forgiveness. Because those who have their sin forgiven by the grace of God understand how great our debt is before the Lord. So, in case you're not following it here, to draw out some parallels in this passage, you're not the king. God is the king in this story. You're not the servant with a little debt. You're the big bad servant with a big bad attitude problem and the big bad debt. And all the people around you are little servants with little debts. In other words, it works like this. We have this infinite sin debt against a holy God. God deals with, God redeems, God forgives our sin, redeems us from our sin, and then we've got people around us, like we sin against God, they're sinning against us, but they're sinning in smaller ways, in, in little ways. So we sort of like to rationalize our debt. 10,000 talents, psh, that's nothing. And what God is saying, no, 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 you have a really big sin problem against a really big God, a king with really infinite power to punish your sin. It's a big deal. Don't sneeze at this. Don't wish it away. It's here. We like to rationalize it. And so what happens is, you know, someone, I don't know, speaks wrong to us. Someone in our family treats our kids in a way that is dismissive or unkind. Someone at church says something they ought not to say. Our boss at work is unreasonable. And we view these things as 10,000 talent debts. And God says, it's real, but it's just an offense. He's, he's, he's not pretending that it doesn't happen, but he's saying, by comparison, your sin is so much greater. I mean, God's word teaches that we're sinners by birth and by choice. And it's not just a matter of understanding our sin from our perspective, it's understanding who we sin against. In other words, think about it like this. Let's say in your backyard you have a shed. You leave it unlocked. I'm walking by, and I see the shed, and I decide, I don't know, I need a hedge trimmer. And so I walk into your backyard, and I see if there's something there. I, I, I break into your shed and enter. Or let's say instead, you know, it's, it's two in the morning. You're asleep. Family, kids, all sleeping. Someone kicks in the door of your house and breaks and enter, which is a worse offense. Or, or maybe this, you're feeling particularly daring, you're a, a, a gifted thief, and so you decide to break and enter the White House. You see, like you're doing the same thing in each case, but, but, but what's changing? The, the gravity of the offense, the, the, the people that you're offending, the people that you're sinning against. Or imagine this, imagine this morning I'm sitting up here and I jump back and there's a palmetto bug scurrying across the stage. And I went, bam, and I killed that palmetto bug. Now, you might be grossed out, but most of you probably wouldn't be offended. Now, maybe there's a palmetto bug lover here. I don't know. Is, is there a palmetto bug lover association? I don't know about it if there is, but maybe there is. But, but most people aren't going to, I mean, the only thing that would be offended is, is, you know, that we have to, I don't know, clean that up and do something about it, right? So what have I done? I have killed something. But imagine instead that someone took out a gun and pointed and, and, and killed, took, took someone else's life. See, what's happening here is 
the same act, breaking and entering, taking a life. What's the difference? It's the person you're offending. It's the person, it's, it's the being whose rights you're violating. Now imagine with me that you're a finite person with limitations and you sin against other finite people with limitations. That's the equivalent of stepping on a palmetto bug. But imagine that there is an infinite being in the universe and that this infinite being is infinitely just, infinitely holy, perfectly righteous. And that to offend this being is to offend the greatest being in the universe. See, now you have a problem. It's not just what you're doing, it is who you are sinning against. And we all, God says, have broken God's law. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and in sinning against an infinite God, we run up an infinite debt. 10,000 talents is a far too small of an estimate for this debt. We can't repay this debt. It requires an eternity of punishment in hell, and even that is just a token gesture, like it would have been a token gesture, selling this man and his family into slavery. So what do we need to pay an infinite debt? We need someone with infinite resources. We need a king. We need someone who can step in, someone who can fix this problem, who can pay this debt. God, the judge, comes knocking and he says, I require payment, and we say, I can't pay. So what do we need? We need someone who can into this gap between our inability and this infinite debt and God's infinite resources steps the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So in Ezekiel 22, the Lord looks out on the sin of mankind and he says this sin runs up a debt and he looks for someone who can meet the gap between our sin and God's infinite justice. God says, I sought for a man who could stand in the gap, and I found none. But then Isaiah 59 tells us, into this gap steps God himself. Isaiah 59, 15, and 16. The Lord saw that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There is no one. So what happens? Then his own arm brought salvation. You see, this is an impossible debt, an impossible scenario, and God provides salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son Jesus so that while we are still indebted sinners, Christ died for us. The choice is clear. If you try to pay the debt yourself, you will perish. But trust Jesus and he'll pay the debt for you. Would you turn from your efforts to pay this sin debt yourself and trust Jesus to save you? And we're going to close with a couple of final thoughts here. First, this is an important thing to understand. There is a difference between the disposition of forgiveness and the transaction of forgiveness. Now, this catches us a lot of times, so just follow, me along, follow along here, if you will. Ephesians 4.32 says, We are to forgive others as God forgives us. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So how does God forgive? God forgives in Christ to repenting sinners. God always stands ready and willing to forgive, but he only forgives on the condition of repentance. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So if we repent, God always forgives. 1 John 1, 10 says, if we say we haven't sinned, 
we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So if we deny our sin and refuse to repent, then God judges us. So God has a constant disposition toward forgiveness. But those who don't repent find themselves in Matthew 18, 35 with God judging their sin. So the same thing happens in our lives. We must have a forgiving disposition, but also recognize that the transaction of forgiveness requires repentance. So let's think through a couple scenarios. You have an abusive parent, and you become an adult, you look back, either you knew at the time or you realize now what was going on, and you carry deep woundedness from this, understandably so. And one thing you wrestle with is, how do I forgive this person? Well, there are two things here. One is, it doesn't do you any good to maintain a heart of bitterness and resentment against this person. Resenting someone else for their sin or maintaining bitterness toward them is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. So it's like you're taking toxicity into your spiritual life and hoping it hurts the other person. That ain't the way it works. It hurts you. So on the one hand, you have to maintain a gracious, forgiving disposition. But on the other hand, this person, to biblically reconcile, must repent, must recognize his or her sin against the holy God. Well, the same thing in terms of, let's, let's say you have a, a, an unfaithful spouse. And you struggle with how, how to work through this. Well, on the, on the one hand, you have your relationship with the Lord where you try to model Psalm 103 that Tommy read earlier to be, to be gracious and forgiving like God is toward us. But on the other hand, that person must be repentant for the transaction to take place. Do you see the difference? So, so one is our heart before the Lord. That's a disposition. The other is a relational transaction that takes place. God always stands ready and willing to forgive. When does God forgive our sin? When we turn from our sin and trust Jesus. We always stand ready and willing to forgive. When do we forgive? Transactionally, when the person repents and requests to be reconciled. Ultimately, if we don't forgive someone, it demonstrates that we don't understand God's grace. And let's just think about this for a moment because forgiving others is rooted in understanding the magnificent forgiving grace of God toward us. Listen to these words that Tommy read earlier. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You see, God's forgiveness, God's love are far greater than anything that we could even imagine. The images that Scripture gives us to try to help us understand this are beyond what we can grasp. So you remember in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that we may have the strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's using kind of the same language that Psalm 103 uses, this, this, this length and breadth, this height and depth. There's this, this, mass, this, this vast, magnificent love of God. You see, God loves you far more than you can ever comprehend. And God has forgiven you far more than you will ever know. So when Paul prays these words, now to him who is able to do far more than anything that we could ask or imagine, he's saying God has already done more for you than you could imagine. God not only is able to do it, God has done it. He has done far more than you could even comprehend. 
You see, we serve an infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, eternally forgiving God. So do not believe the lie that your sin is too big for this God. It's not. God is much greater than our sin. To imagine that is a vast overestimation of our ability and a vast underestimation of the infinite ability of our God. Our Father is perfectly loving, perfectly gracious. If we doubt the love of our Father for his children, it ain't because he's not loving. It's because we don't know him well enough. I mean, listen to what God says about his love. Isaiah 54.10, My steadfast love shall not depart from you. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. 1 John 3, verse 1, See what great love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 4, God is love. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Romans 8, verses 35 through 39, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, just in case I've missed it in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can remove the love of God from his children. Brothers and sisters, we serve an infinitely holy but infinitely loving and gracious God. And in Christ, all these promises are ours. What an amazing gift from an amazing God. Amen. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then we will close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.